Dr. Marketing Tips, paging Dr. Marketing Tips. Dr. Marketing Tips, you're needed in the marketing department. Welcome to the Dr. Marketing Tips Podcast, your prescription to the answers you seek to grow your medical practice easier, better, and faster. This show is all about connecting practice administrators and medical marketing professionals with peers working in practices, learning from experiences, making mistakes, and sharing successes. Let's get started. Hey there, welcome to the Dr. Marketing Tips podcast. I am Jennifer and I am joined today by Dr. Jeff Siegel. Mm -hmm. Interesting guest we're going to have with us today. Neurosurgeon turned attorney turned entrepreneur, all of them at once, probably none of them all together. But I had the pleasure of interacting with Dr. Siegel here in the last couple of weeks and think he'll be a fantastic guest on the podcast. So Jeff, thank you for joining us. That's a blast joining you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you give us just a little bit of background of how you made it from neurosurgeon to attorney to entrepreneur and what that's like. So I think that's mostly a reflection of how confused I am and I still haven't (laughs) figured out my path in life. But anyway, I started out as a neurosurgeon. It's a pretty long training process. And then I actually did practice. I was in the clinical world for about a decade. Right in the middle of my practice, I had a son who became ill. We moved to North Carolina to obtain services for him in that year off. Well, I planned to take a year off to focus on him, then go back to doing what I knew how to do, which is practicing neurosurgery. But in that one-year window, I was introduced to a collection of pharmaceutical compounds at University of North Carolina. I thought they may be helpful to my son. So we started a biotech company in Research Triangle Park, licensed the compounds, raised money, and moved them from preclinical to phase two, which is pretty far along on a shoestring budget. After a healthy period of time, we sold the company to a large medical device company. And then I had to make a decision. Do I go back to practicing neurosurgery? Well, by then it had been quite a while and I figured I'd have to do a refresher course, if nothing else, to give my patients confidence that I wasn't a hack and that I was still trained. And I didn't do it. I ended up starting an organization called Medical Justice, focused on keeping doctors from being sued for frivolous reason, a yes, a hot button issue, which causes smoke to come out of every doctor's ears. And along the way, I got a law degree and then we started Emerit, which is focused on doctor marketing, particularly how to manage those nasty negative reviews that we get. That is the thumb scale sketch of where I am today and how I got there. I think that's an interesting story. And I didn't realize that about your son and about the pharmaceuticals. So you learn something new every day. Today, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about e-merit and about online reviews and just kind of how that plays into the world of marketing. So if you wouldn't mind, share with us some of the biggest pitfalls that you've seen with doctors when it comes to online reviews. So a decade ago, doctors never gave a second thought to online reviews. Why? Because they typically received their patients the traditional way, which would be friends and family or a referring doctor. No one thought of the internet as a tool to capture patients. In addition, no one thought of the internet as a tool where patients are giving feedback and alerting the world as to how good or how bad you are. And because nobody was paying attention to it, most doctors weren't defined by a great deal of reviews. They were defined by a handful of reviews. So if and when they got a negative review, it was like the town crier up there shouting to the universe, Dr. Siegel is a butcher. He's a murderer. He killed me. He charges too much. (laughs) 
He's a murderer, by the way, he charges too much. So um, I think early on, doctors thought no patient would ever choose their physician by going online. And that was my take in the beginning. But over time, it was quite clear that more and more patients are selecting their doctor online initially. Now the number is anywhere from 25 to 30% find their doctor initially on the internet. And for those who find their doctor the traditional way, namely friends and family or referring doctor, patients are still going to the internet to validate that decision. So we say if you ignore the internet, you do so at your peril. There is one type of doctor that probably can ignore the internet. Who is that? The doctor who has a complete and total monopoly without any competition for about 100 miles. That doctor probably doesn't need to think about the internet. But for those in any metro area, you ignore the internet at your peril. Yeah. And I think that more and more physicians are really paying attention to it and realize how important making sure that their digital footprint is clean. I mean, look, there's always going to be people who leave negative reviews. And I think sometimes the negative review stems from something outside of the experience with the physician or the practice. Maybe it's just people that are just negative in general, but sometimes negative reviews happen. I have a hand surgeon who got one this morning and they responded on Instagram and they responded on Facebook and they went to Google and they put something up there and it was some random erroneous review about this doctor stinks. He botched a surgery on a friend of mine's hand and it was something like that. So what would be your suggestion for a physician? Like, How would you approach a negative review like what we saw this morning? And what advice would you offer kind of our listeners out there? The first thing to do is take a deep breath. Everybody gets negative reviews. Everyone. You cannot go an entire career seeing one to 3,000 patients a year and expect to never get a negative review. The Ritz-Carlton gets negative reviews. So just understand they are a fact of life. They need to be addressed. They need to be managed. And interestingly enough... Having an occasional negative review is actually better than having 100% positive reviews. So if you have 500 reviews, they're all five star, and not a single negative review, that is perceived more as marketing material or inauthentic, non-credible information compared to the doctor who has mostly positive but an occasional negative. So here you go, 4.9 is better than 5.0. So my initial instinct would be to send that patient that posted the negative review a thank you note and flowers. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody wants to do that. So what do you do? There are a number of things that can be done. I'm going to deal with this particular case and I want to discuss dealing with negative reviews more broadly. So with this review, the person who posted it isn't even the patient. It's a third party story about a friend or an acquaintance, etc. How would we act on that? We would probably, we have account managers that address the online presence of, of our clients. We would have our account manager reach out to the account managers at the review site and explain that this is a violation of the terms of use. Why? It's not firsthand knowledge. This person never actually saw the doctor. It's hearsay. It's a story of a story of a story. And any violation of a terms of use becomes a candidate for removing it. Now, it seems shocking that a review site would actually pay attention to that, but they actually do. They're somewhat worried about their reputations. Now, depends on the, on the review site. Some seem to worry about their reputations less than others. But by and large, we've found that in this particular case, the likelihood of that review being taken down is probably 95, 98%, very high. Not firsthand knowledge. And you just take a look at the terms of use. Uh, frequently, patient will overstep. They'll use profanity, vulgarity. That is a way to get the review 
you taken down, calling you a criminal, not just a butcher, but a criminal, saying that you engaged in fraud, another way to get it taken down. The list goes on and on, but each site has a terms of use. And if the review that was posted fits into that as having violated terms of use, it's a candidate for being removed. Now, what if the review is not entirely unreasonable? What if it's from a patient and they're describing pretty much what happened? They may be pissed off. This is a debate now. Now the question is, should you respond? And the answer is, we think you should respond, but you need to do it in a HIPAA compliant way. So let me give this color. Well, first of all, before doing that, if you know the patient is, see if you can solve the problem. I know it's kind of old school, but if you pick up the phone and call the patient, you may actually find that they are are receptive to your phone call, that they're shocked that you would take the time as a busy doctor to reach out to them and that you're open to listening to their problem. And indeed, lordy, lordy, you're actually going to solve their problem. And if you do that, then there's a way to potentially get this updated. These are the magic words to use if you've solved their problem. Now that I've solved your problem, I'm hoping you'll be open to the idea of either updating or removing the review. Now, these are the magic words. Please view this as a request and not a demand. Humans like to reciprocate, and most people will take the effort and do the right thing. Not always. Sometimes you will interact with a malicious sociopath, and they won't do that. But most of the time, they'll get it taken down. So if you can solve their problem, solve their problem. But let's say you really cannot solve their problem, and you just want to get a message message out to the universe that you're not the ogre you're being depicted as. You need to do it in a HIPAA compliant way. We've got account managers that do that. We understand HIPAA. We know how to do it properly. We understand the line. There are organizations that say don't respond to anything because any response could be a HIPAA violation. We think that that's probably overstating the case. And we think there are ways to get it done and get it done properly. You just can't release protected health information. Now, you got to be careful because if the patient has their name or picture on there, merely acknowledging they are your patient means that you have released or disclosed a protected health information without authorization. So let me give this color. Let me give an example. Let's say that Siegel's a butcher. He did a facelift on me. It caused an infection. And uh, now he wants $25,000 to fix the mistake that he caused. That's a fairly scathing review. Let's say the patient did have an infection. Okay. And infections are uncommon in your practice. And, but it does happen. You can't be a surgeon anywhere and never get an infection. Those surgeons who say they've never had a complication either have never looked, haven't operated, or they're lying. So it's a known risk of the procedure. So a response could be, we're disappointed anytime any patient of ours experiences a complication. The infection rate in our practice for this type of procedure is 0.5%. The infection rate across the country for this type of procedure procedure is 1%. So our infection rate is lower than the national average. Still, anytime a patient gets a complication, it's 100% to them. Regardless, we'll stand by our patients so that they never feel abandoned and we'll make this right. What have you done there? Number one, you've not even acknowledged that this is your patient. You're, you're speaking broadly. Number two, you've sent a marketing message to the world that your infection rate is lower than the national average. So this is a good thing to say. Number three, you've also let the world know that you'll stand by your patients. If they do get an infection, you're not going to throw them out, kick them out on the street and just ignore them, that you'll pay attention, that you're empathetic, you're a doctor. So these are the types of things that would go into a potential response. So the take-home points, responding does make sense if it can be done in a HIPAA compliant way. Hello, Keith Landry here with Insight Marketing Group, talking public relations. To get your doctor's story on the news, 
You have to hire someone who knows how newsrooms work. Insider insights win news coverage. Our team spent 26 years working in newsrooms and we execute effective public relations campaigns. Trust Insight Marketing Group to get your story on the news. So let me ask you this, Jeff. I've had docs come to me over the years and just up in arms over a review that they want removed. And if they can't get it removed, they want to sue the patient, sue Yelp, sue whoever will do it. I'm not sure where they've ever landed on it because I typically don't get involved in the legal side of things. But what would be your advice to a physician that's just hair is on fire over getting these reviews removed and they just can't do it? So we, we're shoulder deep in this stuff every day. We're looking and maybe beyond shoulder, probably just have a few pieces of hair just sticking out of our head from the mud. But what is our general recommendation? Look, we're looking for an outcome. The outcome is to neutralize the sting of the review, to neutralize the sting of the review. And sometimes it can be taken down and we are able to get them taken down. Sometimes the patient will take it down. So most of the time we're able to move in a proper direction. But if the review is still up there and a response doesn't seem adequate to do that, or at least to eliminate the sting, we do counsel our clients most of the time to avoid litigation. We counsel them, avoid the temptation to sue your patient. And here's why. Number one is that you can't sue Yelp and expect to win. They are immunized by something called Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. I don't want to bore everyone with the details, but you can only imagine that if you were able to successfully sue a review site, many people would have done it and they would have prevailed over time. There are a handful of cases where there has been some action, but Yelp will take this all the way to the state Supreme Court. You will be spending a gazillion dollars on trying to get an outcome. It's not a good use of your money. It's so much easier to dilute a negative review. As we say in surgery, the solution to pollution is dilution. And every surgeon who's listening knows precisely what I'm talking about. So you can't really sue Yelp. What about suing the patient? Again, we really try to educate doctors to avoid doing that. Why? It's going to cost a lot of money to do this. It will take at least two years, maybe longer, and the outcome may very well not go in your favor. There are two strong defenses to an allegation of defamation. One would be opinion, and number two is that the argument that's being made is the truth. If the facts are mostly true, then you will lose. You as the doctor will not win. If it's just an opinion, basically says, I think you're a ripoff and I don't think you're talented, although that's a nasty review and nobody likes to receive that, that's considered an opinion. And again, you will lose. Now, above and beyond spending cash, what's the downside of suing a patient? If you sue a patient, what was marginally picked up by the public will become a front page Google story. So there's something called the Streisand effect. What is the Streisand effect? I never heard of this till someone brought it to my attention. Apparently, a long time ago, some academic, I think, was charged with putting together a website with aerial photographs of houses on the coast of California. Yawn. I can't think of anything more boring than that. But in terms of this project, one of the houses with an aerial photograph belonged to Barbara Streisand. Apparently, she found out about it and said, you need to take that down. And they said, well, we're not going to do it. Now, by the way, when she demanded that those pictures be taken down, less than 10 people had viewed that website, under 10 people, single digits. So the webmaster said, no, Barbara Streisand sued. 
She ultimately lost the case, but this became a front page news story to the point that if you go to Wikipedia and look up Streisand effect, it basically describes this as the unintended outcome of getting increased publicity by the act of using legal threats to prevent publicity. It's a long-winded way of saying don't do it. Now, once Streisand filed her case, hundreds of thousands of people were curious and downloaded the information. So if your goal is to minimize the number of people who are aware of this negative review, the last thing you want to do is sue. Now, there are rare occasions where you'll have a patient who is a malicious sociopath hell-bent on taking you down. And at that point, we're talking about an existential threat to your practice. These are people that just will not go away. They are doubling down. It's not just enough to post a single nasty review. They want a scalp. Not too long ago, there was a, a patient in his early 20s who I think overpaid a $50 copay or deductible. I don't know what it was, but it was a insignificant amount. He posted a nasty review saying that they double billed my insurance company and they charged me and they won't give me my money back. And they wrote him a check. I mean, they folded very quickly and just gave it back to him. That just wasn't enough. He kept posting negative reviews. He probably posted 50 to 100 reviews over time, wouldn't respond to a cease and desist letter and just would not, even though he had achieved his goal, his goal was to get his money back. He got it. But his deeper goal, I think, was to destroy destroy the reputation of the practice and to destroy it financially. So what happened? This practice was forced to hire an attorney. They sued him for defamation. They also filed a complaint with the district attorney under a criminal statute for cyber stalking or cyber, I guess it's cyber terrorism in a way. And the guy lost. So the penalty for him was one year in prison. Now he's appealing that, or at the time that we wrote about it, he was appealing it. Whether he'll actually spend any time in jail or not, I don't know. My larger point is you almost never have to engage in that type of activity. Most of the time, it suffices to just either respond, ignore it, dilute, or get the review taken down by the website. There are so many options, but if you embark upon a path to sue for defamation, it will become public and it will become expensive and you're likely going to lose. Yeah, we've seen that over the years, especially. I remember back in the day when some physicians thought it might be appropriate to have their patients sign something saying they wouldn't leave negative reviews online. And this used to be kind of the standard to have patients sign something. And there was a case where it backfired on the physician and it became very public. And then there was another one where it was a dentist that I heard about who was leaving fake reviews and he got busted and it also became very public and made the news. And so I think sometimes when you go down a malicious path and you just won't let something go, sometimes it backfires and it's always those unintended consequences that bite you in the ass. Yeah. I mean, there are just so many better ways to manage this stuff. Look, we were early believers early on, on the legal route, the contractual path. This would have been over a decade ago on managing that when nobody was getting reviews. And the challenge of course, is how do you persuade a patient to give a review. Happy patients have moved on, even though they shake their head up and down and say, yeah, I'm happy to leave you a review. Once they go home, they've moved on. They're busy. They're like you and me. So the tool that we've created, which is eMerit, is a way to capture feedback at the point of service, making it easy to allow the patient to give feedback. And that gets automatically uploaded to the dominant review sites, typically found on page one of a Google search. And so instead of just being defined by the three to five angry people, with a megaphone, you can be defined by the hundreds of people who genuinely like the work you do and are appreciative.
So tell us a little bit more about eMerit and how that works at the point of sale. So eMerit was designed initially, well, it was birth. We initially thought that what patients were writing about wasn't the stuff that would be important in choosing a doctor. So what do I mean by that? When I choose a doctor, I'm looking for two main things, safety and clinical outcomes, or don't kill me and make me better. I'm also interested in course of the other aspects of a practice, bedside manner, communication, money, ease of making appointments. All that stuff matters, but it doesn't matter as much if you're dead. So it's important to, I think, for patients to understand what metrics of quality are. And a decade ago, we thought, well, I think most people are writing about the stuff that doesn't matter. Money, bedside manner, communication. I mean, it matters, but not as much as safety and outcome. So we got a list of the best and worst surgeons for three procedures from a large insurance company. Best and worst, meaning safety and outcomes. We were blinded as to which surgeons were in each bucket. And then we had some interns go out to the internet just to see what people were saying. And when we unblinded the list, to my surprise, online reputation did correlate with quality, meaning that the best surgeons, safety and outcomes, had the best online reputations. The worst surgeons for safety and outcomes had the worst reputations. Not a perfect correlation, but a fairly strong correlation. So my hypothesis was wrong. Patients are actually pretty good at being able to determine quality. The challenge, of course, was just getting them to write. <laughs> Human nature being what it is, unhappy people are more likely to take the time to write. Happy people have moved on. So point of service made all the difference in the world. And we were the first to put an iPad in the office and everybody's workflow is different, but in the office. And again, these are the magic words. You always have to have magic words. Can we get your feedback? Not asking for a review, you're asking for their feedback. And the process of the feedback, if the patient can keep it private, keep it internal, or they can give you their authorization to upload it to the internet, and we were doing that, and they can make a decision as to whether to use their name or an alias. But we've been at that now for close to a decade and have uploaded just shy of 400,000 patient reviews, quite a bit. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting, I had not anticipated that by using this tool and dominating the online review space, that practices would see stratospheric growth, new patient revenue, new patient growth. I didn't expect that because I personally would not choose a doctor based solely on the internet, but it turns out I'm a dinosaur. I'm the person that is more the exception than the rule. But I can tell you now, the vast majority of people are using online reviews and it's a way to jumpstart a practice. And particularly if you're new, if you're just getting started, you can use the internet to look like a seasoned veteran that's been out in practice for 15, 20, 30 years. And because you're you're a digital native, it actually will be easier for you to, to get that done. So a lot of this was an epiphany to me. I'd never understood medical marketing from that perspective, but it's a no-brainer. There are many things you can do, but online reviews are the easiest way to tap into the voice of your patient and turn this into a home run. Yeah, Jeff, you are speaking our language. So if folks want to find out more about eMerit or medical justice, where can they find out a little bit more? To our website, that's www.medicaljustice.com, medicaljustice.com, or call us 877-MEDJUST, M-E-D-J-U-S-T. 
Easy peasy. Awesome. Any final remarks? Um, anything you want to leave our listeners? Yeah, we are the easy button for capturing patient feedback and catapulting a practice from meh to superstar. That assumes you're doing decent work, but if the public is unaware that you're doing great work, then you don't exist. It's similar to if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, was a sound made. And if you're doing great work and the public isn't aware of it, are you really a talented physician? We think those who ignore the internet do so at their peril. Jeff Siegel, folks. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. We really appreciate it. And I'll see you guys next time on the Dr. Marketing Tips podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the DrMarketingTips.com podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out DrMarketingTips.com for our podcast resource center with all the notes, links, and goodies we mentioned during the show. If you're not already a subscriber to our show, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss one of our future episodes. And if you haven't given us a rating or review yet on iTunes, please find a spare minute and help us reach and educate even more of our medical practice peers. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Doctor's Orders.